well, if all the world's a stage and we are merely players, then where's the script? Because we all know that a good script makes all the difference. You can have the best actors, the best directors, the best special effects, but without a solid script, it's all going to fall apart pretty quickly. I mean, improv is great, but it's never going to carry the weightiness of something like a Macbeth. Imagine just getting all the best actors and directors together, assigning parts, throwing them on stage, and then telling them, hey, just make up a play about like rampant ambition and wanton treachery and a, a couple wayward witches, and, and, and surely this will come together the way we've always planned. No, it, it wouldn't even come close to the, to the drama and to the weight of a masterpiece like Macbeth. There, there's a reason that that script has lasted 400 years, and there's a reason that the best actors and the best directors still want to be a part of that production. Because as good as they are, that script makes them even better. Well, I find the same to be true when it comes to prayer. That the best scripts make us even better. By God's grace, over the last six months, we've spent lots of time thinking and talking about prayer. And learning how to trust the script. And by that, I don't mean a canned prayer. What I mean is looking at God's word as the place where we find all of our cues, all of our dialogue, everything we need to know, to know where we fit in the story and how our character is supposed to respond in the midst of the drama of Macbeth. When our lives feel like we've been thrown into the middle of Macbeth, we know we can trust the script. We can trust the Lord who has given it to us. This morning, I want us to look at one of my favorite prayers. It's in Psalm chapter 25. Over the last couple of weeks, I have prayed this prayer dozens of times for myself and for my family, for you guys as I pray through the directory, as the Lord brings you to mind, or even just a couple weeks ago, I used it as the outline for my pastoral prayer as we prayed for those among our body who have gone out with the International Mission Board. This is a wonderful outline for how we are to appeal to the great and sovereign God. And so my hope today is that you'll fall in love with this script, this psalm, because it is delightful. Now, we're in Psalm chapter 25. It's in the middle of your Bible. If you're using the pew, back, uh, the, the pew Bible that's in front of you, we're on page 459. So follow along as I read it and attempt to apply it to our lives this morning. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. 
Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, Guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Praise God. Often the first couple verses of a psalm are the keys to unlocking all that follows. And and that seems to be true here in Psalm 25 as well. So we see at the very beginning that this psalm was originally composed by David. That little superscript in all caps at the top is important. And it tells us that the one who had been anointed king over God's people is bringing this set of appeals to God. The, The bulk of this prayer is going to be a personal cry for help but it's going to close appropriately with David lifting up a request on the behalf of the entire nation that he represents. And so David is here. He's making an appeal to the Lord. That's what it means when he says, I lift up my soul. He's turning to God, his God, and lifting up his soul, his his innermost parts, his most vulnerable pieces. He's lifting them to Yahweh, to the Lord to the covenant-keeping God of Israel and the sovereign of the universe. He's not lifting up his soul to what is false. That's what he warned us about in the last psalm, over in Psalm 24, verse 4. The one who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord is one who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. And so David here now is lifting up his soul to the one who is true, to the only one who is true, to Yahweh to the creator God. And the heart of his appeal is found right here in verse 2. Let me not be put to shame. At the end of the day, or at the end of all of his days, David does not want to be disgraced. Every other appeal that shows up in Psalm 25 finds its root here in, let me not be put to shame. Every other request, and there's at least 20 other requests that are in this psalm, they all come out of this heartfelt desire from David not to be put to shame. 
Even the one that immediately follows, let not my enemies exult over me, is a, a poetic repetition of the first idea, that he would not be found shamed. And what it is is that David knows that in this life or, or at his graveside, if his enemies were to stand over him and gloat and, and to pour shame on him, that would be a representative, representation not of his just earthly lifetime, but of eternal things. It would be a picture that maybe his eternal parts of him, his soul, are, are carrying stains of shame into the next life. And so he asks, he pleads, God, the God I trust, let me not be put to shame. And he knows that this is a request that can be heard because he knows the ground rules. He, he voices them in verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. This is the context for all of David's appeals. None who wait on the Lord will be put to shame. None who wait on the Lord, brothers and sisters, will be put to shame. Waiting on the Lord here, it's, it's a metaphor for hoping and trusting in God. You don't wait on what you don't think is coming. And, and you don't wait on what you don't think is worth the wait. And David knows that the Lord will come through on his promises and he is absolutely worth the wait. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that he will come through on his promises and he is absolutely worth the wait. And what David does is he lifts this to the Lord. All these other requests flow from it. He doesn't want to be like those who are wantonly treacherous, those who will be put to shame. That promise will come true. Those, these are those who plot and who, who scheme to overthrow the Lord, like in Psalm 2. They're, they're those who are treacherous without reason or, or without cause. That's what wantonly means there. They're treacherous because in their hearts, everything goes against, it chafes against the goodness of the Lord. And so they rebel at every turn. They're constantly looking for ways in which to be treacherous. And David doesn't want to be counted among those. He wants to be counted among those who have waited for the Lord. But he can't just do it in his own strength. If, if that's all that was required, he could just uh, ask God that I would not be ashamed and know that all he has to do is wait, and that'd be the end of this prayer. It would end at verse 3. But what David knows is that waiting on the Lord requires the Lord. And if the Lord will not help him wait, he won't wait. He will be wantonly treacherous without the Lord's help. And so he's going to bring five appeals to the Lord, five requests. Out of his loneliness and affliction, he's going to bring these five requests. And so what I want us to look at today is what are the five appeals of the afflicted? What are the five things that spring from the heart of one who wants to wait on the Lord. And so we're going to see a request for guidance, a request 
for mercy, a request for instruction, a request for grace, and a request for deliverance. Guidance, mercy, instruction, grace, and deliverance. And by God's help, I'll remember to remind you of those as we go along. These requests are going to reveal the character of God and how God in his grace relates to David. Those themes are going to be repeated over and over again, and they're going to be emphasized throughout. So don't be surprised if you find a little bit of each request in all the different sections as we work our way through this psalm together this morning. So let's look at this first request. Let's pick up in verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Waiting on the Lord is not a passive endeavor. It can't be done lazily or or idly. It's active. It requires movement. The the imagery that David uses here is one of someone on a journey. So make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. What David doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to walk in the paths that lead to treachery and rebellion. He knows that those trails, they all dead end in death and shame. Instead, David trusts in the Lord. And and this trust, it's not stationary. He's not immobile. Instead, that trust leads him to action, action done in faith. So knowing the ways of the Lord isn't something that is inherent to him. He can't figure it out on his own. Instead, he needs the Lord to lead him, to lead him down those paths, to make them known to him. And we need to for the Lord to lead us along them, because while we know that he has promised that his paths lead to green pastures and still waters, they often require us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need him to lead us through those. That's the path that leads to hope. And and we're not going to get there on our own. We must be led. This kind of fellowship requires trust. It requires submission. David doesn't want to trust in his own ways, in his own paths, in his own truth. No, he wants to trust in God's path, in God's ways. He says, lead me in your truth. Teach me. Because this God, Yahweh, is the God of his salvation. And this God, we know, sent his son to be the way the truth, and the life. And that no one can follow a path, create their own path to get to the Father except through that Son, Jesus Christ. And so how do we make this kind of request for guidance? How do we make a request for guidance ourselves? By trusting the script. By using even just the language here that we find in verse 5. Lead me. Lead me, Lord. That should be a prayer that's constantly on our lips. Lead me. Lead me, Lord. Lead me as I lead my family. Lead me as I follow those you've put over me. 
Lead me as I try to spend the money that you've given me. Lead us as we try to steward as a congregation all that you've given us. Lead us, Lord, even if that means suffering. Lead me in that way because I know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Romans 5.5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Lord, I trust you that even as you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, through struggle, it will lead to hope. And so I wait on you because I know there's no shame at the end of this trial. Lead me is a prayer we should often pray. But we are prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And so we need to pray for more than just that he would lead us, but that he would give us mercy. And that's our second request. It's a request for mercy. And we see it in verses 6 and 7. Because even as David waits on the Lord, he knows that he has not always waited on the Lord. And even as he waits on the Lord, he doesn't wait on the Lord perfectly. And so he cries in verses 6 and 7, Remember your mercy, O Lord. And your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. You see, the gap between those who are wantonly treacherous and those who wait on the Lord, well, it's not, it's not a wide gap. Actually, it's, it's a very narrow line in our own hearts between when we are waiting on the Lord and when we are running from him. And it would be really easy to accuse others of being rebellious and not to inspect the log that we would find in our own eyes. David knows this about himself, and he knows his Bible well enough to know that how quickly we are to turn away from the one true and living God and instead turn to idols. It, it, it seems as though David is meditating on the Exodus as he writes Psalm 25. There's just tons of references back to that, that book, particularly uh, chapters 32 through 34. And at that point in the story, God has rescued his people from Israel. He has led them through the Red Sea. He is taking them to the promised land. And he, he takes his servant Moses up on Mount Sinai to give him the covenant and the laws. And while Moses is away, the rest of Israel loses their ever-loving minds. And they run to an idol. And they create for themselves a golden calf, despite having every reason, every cause to want to follow the Lord. They are wantonly treacherous. Without regard, with total abandon, they rebel against the Lord. And the consequences of that is that God brings shame upon them. He tells them he will no longer be their God. He will no longer go with them. They're on their own. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And in chapter 33, he brings the same kind of prayers to God on behalf of the people that David brings now here in our psalm on behalf of the people. 
asking that God would show them his ways, that he'd remember them, that he'd be kind and merciful to them. And God relents. He relents. He shows mercy, not because they've earned it. They clearly have not earned it, but because he is merciful. God reveals that his justice and his mercy are defining attributes of his name and therefore his person. We, we, actually, we saw it in the call to worship. If you look back in your worship guide to page five, we saw there from, from Exodus 34, this is how God speaks to Moses after that. After that whole episode, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, and this is what he proclaimed. This is how he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, when you see it in all caps there, that's, that's the way the English translators are helping us remember the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So he's proclaiming his own name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God what? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is a God worth waiting for. One who is able to enforce the consequences of sin for generations. One who clearly does not forget iniquity, but one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So David here in Psalm 25, he appeals to this mercy and steadfast love that has been from of old. He doesn't assume that's merely how God used to be, but, how, but who God is now. And so he asks God to withhold the discipline he deserves and instead to show mercy. And notice there's nothing good about David in these verses. The only references to him are in regards to his sins and his transgressions. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loves us, shows goodness and favor to an undeserving but repentant sinner. And so when we pray this prayer, this prayer for mercy, we pray it this way. Lord, remember me. Remember me. Remember me according to your steadfast love and not according to my sins. This is actually, this little prayer, it's, it's really more powerful than we think. It's one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. You may have forgotten it, though. It shows up in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. It's when Christ is on the cross. And there are two thieves, one on his right and one on his left, and one mocks the very Son of God. And the other one says, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, 
For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. And what does he say? And he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. I know I've been wantonly treacherous. And I'm paying the penalty for that now. But my only hope is in you. Remember me not according to the sins of my youth or my transgressions. But remember me according to your steadfast love and mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you think that you're too far from God, that there's no hope of mercy for you. And remember that he can and will Remember you according to his steadfast love and mercy. That you don't need to be defined by the sins of your youth and transgressions, but you can turn and trust in him as your only hope. And he will show you mercy. Some of you have forgotten how much mercy you needed. You've begun to think that you're closer to waiting than you are to wanton. And, and that it was just a simple matter for, for God to add you to his team. That you were a, a first round draft pick, if it were. And I would encourage you to regularly pray this prayer. Remember me according to your steadfast love and mercy. Because the discipline of regularly praying that prayer will remind you of how easily forgettable you were in your transgressions and sins. And that request to remember me, well, it does come from a place of humbleness and humility. But more than that, it also instills that humility in us. Pours into us the very humility we need to rightly relate to God. And that's actually what comes up in the next few verses. We see that humility is necessary for us to rightly relate to God. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Don't miss how shocking that verse is. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he destroys sinners. Therefore, he rightly condemns those who have been wantonly treacherous. Therefore, he extinguishes all his enemies. No, hear the mercy there. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. And this, this is our third request, our request for instruction. 
that he would lead us, that he would have mercy on us, that he would instruct us. Who does he instruct? Which sinners does he instruct? Well, according to this, it's not every sinner, but it's those who are humble, those who fear the Lord, those who keep his covenants and his testimonies. Those are the ones he instructs. Those are the ones he teaches. Look at verse 14. It says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenants. Oh, how gracious this is. Because his, his paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For who? For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. He, every direction that the Lord would lead leads to steadfast love and faithfulness, but only for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. How is that possible that we could know that? How is that possible that we could keep it? Well, he is gracious to instruct sinners. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He remembers that we can't do this on our own. And so graciously, he guides us. He teaches us. He makes known to them his covenant. And and how does he make known to them his covenant? Look at the mercy of verse 14. The friendship of the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is the way in which he instructs us. This idea here of friendship is a sweet and intimate term. Some of your translations may have translated it like that the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. Or, or he confides in those who fear him. All of them are trying to get at an intimate relationship between sinners and the sovereign of the universe. Enemies who become friends. Those who should be excluded who are brought into his counsel. Those who are foolish who are given his counsel. This is the sweet friendship that the Lord offers. It's the friendship that Jesus promised in the scripture reading we read earlier from John 15. Where do we find this friendship? It's when we obey his commands. It's when we keep his covenants. This friendship is offered to us, but how can we keep it? How is it offered to us? It is offered to those who fear the Lord. Who fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to respect him. To know that he cannot be taken for granted or presumed upon. To recognize the consequences of what it means to disrespect him. To not follow him. And the fear of the Lord is not a place of sorrow. It's a place of great rejoicing. The fear of the Lord is actually a balm to our soul. John Flavel described it this way. He says, the fear of God will swallow up the fear of man. It's a reverential awe and dread of God that will extinguish the creature's slavish fear as the rain puts out the fire. As we grow in our fear of the Lord, all other fears dissipate. As we grow in our understanding of the Lord, his covenants are made clear 
and our hope in them is sure. As we grow in our deep appreciation of the wonder of God, then his counsel becomes sweet to us like the whisperings of a friend. This is what is in front of us. And so how do we pray this? Well, we pray this just like we saw back in verse 5. Teach me. Teach me, Lord. Teach me. I need to be taught. I do not understand. I want to follow my own way. I want to go astray. I don't want to follow you. I don't understand how you can do this. I don't understand. Teach me. Teach me your ways and your attributes. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to know what wisdom is. Teach me your statutes and your laws. Teach me what good judgment looks like. Teach me to do your will. And he does this graciously as a friend teaches a friend. And he does this by his spirit, through his word, in the context of his church. That's the place where we find this kind of instruction. By his Holy Spirit, through his word, in the context of his church. And so let me encourage you, as you desire this year to be taught by God, to be instructed by God, as you lift this appeal to him, then maybe one of your New Year's resolutions should be to put yourself in a place to learn about the ways of the Lord. Maybe it's to commit to being a part of the equipping hour at 9 o'clock, joining in one of our Hebrews studies or, or one of the topical studies this year. We have one on prayer going right now. What a great one to jump into. Maybe it's a commitment to jump into BTI when it reopens for you in the fall. Maybe not only to, to plan to be a part of the Bible Training Institute next fall, but to commit that if I'm going to do the Old Testament class next year with BTI, then between now and August, I'm going to read the whole New Old Testament. I'm going to read the whole Old Testament. Take it on in seven months. It's completely doable. There are lots of reading plans out there that would help you take on even an audacious goal like that. Maybe you need to stop by our, our bookstall and pick up a copy of, of None Like Him or, or, or Knowing God. Something that will deepen in you an appreciation for God and a humility in your own soul. The humility it takes to be taught this way. And that's incredibly important because God opposes the proud, but he gives what? He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's what David prays for right here. In verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. What David asks for now, for him to not be ashamed, is that God would give him grace. This is a request for grace. Grace is more than just mercy. Where we, mercy is that we don't receive what we do deserve. But grace is is when God offers to us, gives to us what we don't deserve. He gives us the blessing we don't 
deserve. Mercy and grace are, are two sides to the same coin, and you can see why David would ask for both, that he would ask for mercy, that God would not remember his sins, and that he would ask for grace, that he would forgive him of his sins, pardon him of his sins, and lead him in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ in this way? Have you prayed this prayer? Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for ways I have run from you, way I have rebelled against you, way I have covered myself with sin and shame, the way I have brought on my own afflictions, my own loneliness, my own troubles, my own distresses. Look on these, Lord, and forgive me. Because God is a God who does not merely just forget things. When he chooses not to remember our sins and our transgressions, it's because he's placing them on another. He's placing them on Christ. He's placing them on the one who would be our way, our truth, our life. He's the one who would be for us all that we need. The one who the Son of God who never needed to be alone, who was perfectly content forever in the Trinity and yet chose to be forsaken on the cross. The one who created all things by the very words of his mouth and yet remained silent like a lamb before its shears. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted on our behalf. For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we ask God to forgive us, when we cry out as he does in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. We are asking that he would take our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, our rebellion, our punishment, and place it on the one who did not deserve it, but who willingly took it on himself in Christ, who paid that penalty on the cross, who died on our behalf, but who rose again, and who now offers for all who would pray this prayer with heartfelt trust in God, Lord, forgive me of my sins, for they are great. He promises to forgive those who turn away from their sin and trust in him. I pray that you have done that. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to be that savior for you, I pray that you would right now do so. And I would love to talk with you about it after the service. I'd love to catch you out in the foyer. I'd love to get coffee with you this week or, or read God's word with you this semester, whatever it would take to help you understand the great goodness of the forgiveness of God and to trust in him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. And I promise you, there are dozens more in this room who would gladly do the same to help you walk in the faithfulness of our Savior. Trust in him to forgive you. Forgive me should ever be on our lips. And God has the power to deliver us not only from our greatest need, our sin, he has a willingness to do so. And because he has a willingness to do so, and the ability to do so. We can trust that he has the ability and the willingness 
to deliver us from all of our lesser afflictions as well. Every other affliction that would follow in this life, we can trust him to be our deliverer, our refuge. And so our last request here is a request for rescue. Look at verses 19 through the end. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David turns again here to the earthly representations of the threats on his life, the threats on his soul, to his enemies, to his foes. And he knows that he can trust in God to deliver him from those things, just like he trusts in him to deliver his very soul. And so we can do the same. I don't know what enemies and foes look like for you today. I don't know how the world is hating you because it does hate you. It's been promised to us that it would hate us, that it would hate us with a deep hatred, with a violent hatred, verse 19. And it hates you because it hates our Savior. And as it has hated him, so we will feel that retribution, that anger, that, hang, that hatred upon us. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Instead, find your refuge in God. There's a great blessing there, according to Psalm 2, verse 12. There's a blessing on all those who find their refuge in God. And so I don't know if that enemy is in your home, whether it's a, a spouse or a, a wayward child who's wreaking havoc on your life. I, I don't know if that enemy is at work or at school. I don't know if it's just in the world abroad. I don't know if it's just our spiritual enemy, Satan, who wants to kill and to steal and to destroy. But I know you have enemies, and I know you can trust in the one who will conquer those enemies. And so pray this prayer. Lord, deliver me. Deliver me. Deliver me from all of my enemies. And, and it may not be that he delivers you in the way that you expect, as we've prayed for his wisdom, as we've prayed for him to show us his ways, plural, we're not waiting for one singular answer, one specific response. We're trusting that all of God's ways, however he leads them, however he delivers us, whatever he does with his integrity and uprightness, that all of those paths will lead to steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we pray this prayer over and over again, Lord, Deliver me. Deliver me from cancer. Deliver me from this difficulty. Deliver me from this fear of man. For I take refuge in you. And I had the opportunity to talk about this passage with one of our supported workers this week. And he's uh, in a country where he's trying to learn the language and he's trying to get to know uh, folks there. And so we had a conversation with his language partner this week. And he was just asking them and trying to understand how things are expressed in their language and trying to, trying to learn. And he said, okay, if I wanted to say these things to God in your language, how would I ask for this? 
how would I know how to say this? What would be the words that I would use? And his language partner, who is not a deeply religious person, but understands kind of the religion of the context, he said, well, you just pray this prayer. And he just gave him a few lines. And there was nothing in the prayer that had anything to do with the requests that he wanted to make. But that was his only option. It was only a canned prayer, an impersonal prayer to an impersonal deity. That was his only hope. And he and I were shocked this week that we can pray these kinds of prayers. That we can ask the Lord of the universe to deliver us and to forgive us and to instruct us and to remember us and to lead us through the countless ways he has written our story, through the countless things that are in front of us. We can follow this script. We can trust him because we have a God who hears these kind of prayers and wants us to bring them to him. I pray that you would pray these kinds of prayers because we have a God who hears. Let's bring those prayers to him now.